welcome to the Shanna Plan. This is episode 89, episode Charlie Warner. We are fresh off the NFL draft. It came, it went. Debo Samuel still on the roster. Jimmy Garoppolo still on the roster. But 49ers had an interesting weekend as they always do. So we're going to get into that today. We're going to talk about a an international game as well as a new, not so new, familiar face cornerback that the team just signed i am kyle posey as always i am joined by akash akash how's it going pretty good kp can you believe the draft came and went already and we're in may and they're about to release the schedule it just felt like the season ended and it's already may may the fourth may the fourth be with but you it's um it's moving fast man um may the fourth be with you speaking about speaking of that uh, this has nothing to do with anything. So my daughter had a band concert last night and they were playing Star Wars intro music and it was really freaking good. Like it was really Damn. cool. So what did uh, you play? Yeah, I didn't I didn't know she plays a flute. I didn't know that um, fourth through sixth graders were capable of this. So it was cool to see. Um, OK, let's, let's talk about what's going on in 49er land. So on Wednesday morning. Um, the NFL announced, I think it was six international games, and there's going to be four in London, there's going to be one in Germany, and there's going to be one in Mexico. And this has been thrown out there, and the 49ers have been tied to the Cardinals, and essentially it's been spoiled that it was going to happen, but now it's official. So on November 21st, the 49ers are going to, quote-unquote, travel to play the Arizona Cardinals. So it's going to be a road game, which is good because they'll still have nine games at Levi Stadium. And it is week 11, I believe. So that means the Cardinals will have DeAndre Hopkins, who tested positive for PEDs this week. So he's going to miss the first six games. So goodbye to your season, Arizona. Um, let's talk about that, though. So there are a few different points about this that, you know, are, are worth noting. And, you know, whether it's who the 49ers play afterwards because of the travel and Akash and I were talking about, you know, potentially going to the game and I Googled it and Mexico city is over 1400 miles from me. And I am already pretty close to the border in Phoenix, Arizona. So, so much for that short road trip, but uh, what, uh, what was your first reaction, your initial reaction when you found out that the Niners are going to be taking a trip to Mexico city? That you and I have no idea where Mexico City is on the map, but clearly I, I thought Kyle, who lives in Phoenix, would just be able to drive down to Mexico City. I was like, yeah, you know, just cross the border. It's right there. Yeah, clearly I was way off, but we knew this was kind of coming now for a few months, right? Mayoko and Barrow seemed to hint at it I don't know, a couple months ago saying that just watch out. The 49ers Cardinals might be playing in Mexico City um, right around their Revolution Day holiday, which I think is that November 21st. So it's going to be cool. Uh, it's going to be a Monday night football game under the lights at uh, Estadio Azteca. Um, they seemingly have a, a game there every year. Um, was this the game where they had like the grass was an issue a couple years ago? I or, believe or am so. I was thinking that, of something was else. Was that Chiefs Chargers? Yeah, where the field was just awful and just stuff was flying off the grass everywhere. So that was my first thought. Like, okay, how's the field going to be? Because 49ers have just generally had injuries with turf in the past, and this will be grass. It's a little different. So, you know, that was the first thought. The second thing, like you mentioned, DeAndre Hopkins is going to be back because it is week 11 late in the season. Then the third thing, the Niners don't lose a home game. So now they have nine home games. 
seven away games and this neutral site game, which I think is really going to be dominated by 49ers fans just based off of, um, you know, mentions and, and travel. And it seems like they have a pretty good fan base down there in Mexico. So that would be pretty cool as well. And you figured, you know, Trey Lance getting his first start in Mexico as well. They haven't had, when's the last time they had an international game? Yeah, I think it's been, well, I'm not sure exactly when the last time the 49ers played um, an international game, but I know that in 2005, the Cardinals and the 49ers did. And uh, Tim Rattay was the quarterback in that game. And Alex Smith, or that's what led, that was the season that led to Alex Smith, I, I'm pretty sure. But let's, uh, let's turn the page here because the 49ers also signed a cornerback on Tuesday. His name is Jason Verrett. Jason Verrett has been on the 49ers roster for a few years now. He played in 2020 and he played very well. He played to an all pro level. He lasted not even one game in 2021. He tours ACL against the Detroit Lions. And that's what led to the signing of Josh Norman. And we know how that went. Thankfully, this time around, if Verrett does go down due to injury, the 49ers have a bunch of youth behind him and they also have some talent not just youth and I think that's important to make that distinction so uh, Jason Verrett he is going to cost less than a million dollars against the salary cap so that is important Uh, John Lynch was actually speaking about Jason Verrett recently and you know he said he views him he was on KMBR and Lynch said that he views Jason Verrett still as a number one corner for the team and you know he always talks about how crushing it was to see him go down but Uh, He also mentioned how Brett just showed leadership. He was still around the building and now he'll have a chance to rehab with the team. So that was interesting to me when, you know, he mentioned we're going to we're pretty much going to give him a chance to rehab under us. So I don't know if they're going to slow roll Brett. I don't think there's any point in rushing him, you know, making sure that he's ready for July 28 or whenever that the training camp that uh, the 49ers report to training camp. If anything, man, just make sure that he is 120% ready. And if you have to wait until October for that to happen, then so be it. But even if you have to start him on the season on the pup list, just to, again, ensure that he his body is right, his he's ready to go because, you know, I'd much rather have Jason Verrett out there toward the end of the season, you know, as you're striving toward the playoffs. But who knows? We're, we're a ways away from that. But I think it's good to have Brett on the roster just because, again, leadership. He will show the young guys how to work. He will show the young guys how to prepare. A lot of times during training camp last season and, I mean, over the last couple seasons, uh, he was one of the first guys out there. Like, he knows what it takes to prepare at this level. And, I mean, it helps that he's good. So you're going to naturally (laughs) gravitate towards good players if you are a young player. So it'll be good for the draft class, which we will uh, talk about coming up. I'm not going to sit here and hold my breath and say, hey, Brett's going to play all 17 games and he's going to be have another all pro season. But I think just having that kind of presence in the building will will go a long way uh, for the young players. Well, what do you think about Brett? And do you think, you know, uh, I guess, how long do you think he's going to last the season? I feel like you and I foreshadowed this as well. When we talked back in March, we just said, you know, it just makes sense to bring back Jason Brett on a flyer deal. I mean, as long as you're not depending on him to start week one and be your outside corner opposite of Emmanuel Mosley, if he's just a depth signing, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because he has familiarity with the scheme. He's been with the team for the last few years. Um, clearly, he also likes the team being around uh, this coaching staff in this building. Um, and so from that standpoint, it just makes sense. And then you look at the cornerback depth chart 
you expect Emmanuel Mosley and Traverius Ward to start on the outside. You don't pencil Jason Verrett in as a week one starter on the outside. Um, and then now you've got some young depth behind those guys, right? You have Ambry Thomas, who had some experience towards the end of the season. He'll be a backup. Tariq Castro-Fields, one of the players that they drafted. We'll talk about him in a little bit, but he'll be a backup in that spot. Dante Johnson, who actually proved himself a little bit in the playoffs. He's on this roster, so he's also capable you know, of playing multiple positions, whether it's outside, inside. He even played some safety last season. So it seems like they've got a lot of depth in the secondary. So it makes sense to just bring back Jason Verrett and throw him into the mix because now you have competition in training camp, assuming Verrett is healthy by then, which is just going to make all these guys better, which is what you want out of the secondary, which was, again, a position of weakness last year because they had to roll out Josh Norman for half the season. And so I think it's a position that's actually one of their deeper uh, roster spots this this season on defense, right? Their defensive line and their secondary, you'd say, are probably the two deepest position groups right now, which is a really good thing. And then if you're, you know, from Verrett's perspective, he's going to make a little over $1.1 million. He got the veteran salary benefit, which basically means, you know, you get the veteran minimum salary uh, plus a signing bonus. And the only thing that counts towards the salary cap is the, the salary. So he gets, he pockets $1.1 million, but only counts towards the 49ers salary cap for $900,000. And in the offseason, the salary cap only counts the top 51 salaries. And the lo- and effectively, Jason Verrett didn't even make a difference in the top 51 salaries because the, the 51st salary was 895 k which is what Verrett makes. So that signing cost them $0 in the offseason cap. It just costs them a roster spot. So I think it's smart. I think it makes sense for both sides for all the reasons you mentioned as well. And Clearly, based off all the response you see on social media from the players, clearly they like him too, which is important. And game on. Maybe the 49ers should listen to our producer, Rob Guerrero, for personnel decisions because he does not like the signing of Jason Verrett. And (laughs) I cannot wait till Verrett proves Rob wrong because we will remind everybody when that happens. Okay, let's turn the page because this time last week, We were talking about a second round wide receiver from the 2019 draft getting traded. And that happened. That did not happen on the 49ers because the Titans traded AJ Brown and he is now on the Eagles. AJ Brown received a new contract right away, which is really what the reason why he was traded because um, I I guess he just wasn't in the Titans future plans, which Uh, Let's see how that works out for you, Tennessee. Okay, let's talk about the deal because A.J. Brown's new contract extension, you know, kind of lays out the framework for gives the 49ers an idea of what they can do when it comes to extending Debo Samuel. So it's important to note that we're talking about, you know, same agent, same age. I don't want to say the same. They're not the same type of player, but they've had similar production. And they've also had a similar injury history where, you know, I don't believe A.J. Brown's made it. Um, he's not, I don't think he's made it a full season. Yeah, he's, Debo he's missed has. at least, which is, yeah, a thumbs up for Debo if, you know, he's using that in the negotiation strategy. Right. But A.J. Brown's missed at least three games, I believe, in each of the three seasons. So it shows you, you, even if you have star potential, you know, the teams will still try to manipulate. Okay, let's let's talk about his salary cap, his his cap hit for each season. So – a lot of people think when you make these 
make these deals, their initial year, so the 2022 year, will just boom. And that's not the case. And I feel like a lot of people need to understand that. So in AJ Brown's first contract year, so this year, 2022, his cap hit is only 5.6 million. And after that, it's going to go to 9 million. So in 2023, it jumps to 9 million. And then it more than triples to 28 million in 2024. And after that, 23 million. And after that, you see 38 million thinking, oh my goodness. But we'll get into what those final years mean, <laughs> the, the likelihood of Brown seeing those. But so those are the cap hits. And on the surface, Brown has a four-year, $100 million contract with $57 million guaranteed. But, I mean, when I say but, Brown is only guaranteed $40 million at the time of signing, which does matter because Tyreek Hill had $52 million guaranteed at the time of signing. And, you know, there's always people worried. When you see Hill get that type of money, you're thinking um, Debo would come in the same ballpark. But... I think it's going to be closer, if not less, than what Brown received at the time of signing. And I would imagine, I mean, now that I say that out loud, it'll probably be closer to 43, 45. And again, who knows? We're just, we're, we're guessing. We're spitballing. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it could be a, a bunch of different things. But in reality, instead of that four-year, $100 million contract for Brown, it's really three years, $57.2 million. And... I mean, it sounds a lot better to say out loud, you make 25 million as opposed to the 19 million, but the 49ers have history of doing this as well. And when I say this, I'm talking about like the ghost years at the end of the contract and essentially manipulating the salary cap. That way you can, you can basically have those early years cheaper. Um, there's option bonuses that I'm, I'm going to throw to Akash here to get into, but Fred Warner, George Kittle, Trent Williams, like, there are three contracts that they have essentially done over the last couple of years that all will resemble that all just give them a good framework to work on. So um, if you could talk about the option bonus, because I feel like that is a big deal here and that is a good way for the 49ers to, um, I, I guess, keep those first two years, at least, whether it's 2022, 2023 or whenever they do get an extension, um, that cap hit lower for Debo. Yeah, before we even get into the option bonus, I'm sure when John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan saw A.J. Brown's contract, they were probably doing cartwheels. Do you not agree based off of the numbers? Big time, big time. Because earlier in the offseason when Christian Kirk got paid four for 72 with $37 million guaranteed, and D.J. Moore got paid, uh, Mike Williams got paid, um, Chris Godwin got paid, and then the numbers just kept going up and up. And then the, the finality of that was Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill. And those last two guys, I mean, Tyreek Hill got, you, you mentioned $52 million guaranteed at signing. I think it was like $72 million, you know, total guarantees. And you just thought, oh my God, Debo Samuel is going to, you know, break the bank just because typically contracts just, they get higher and higher. And so you were worried, you know, depending on which guy got paid first, whether it was AJ Brown, Debo Samuel, or DK Metcalf, right? They're all repped by the same agent and Tory Dandy. So depending on whoever got paid first, you figured that the next guy was going to get paid more. And so you were kind of holding your breath on these numbers. And then you saw, okay, four for 100 with $57 million total guaranteed, right? That's not anywhere near $70 million. So all of a sudden you're like, okay, you know, that sets the ballpark in terms of negotiations. If you're the 49ers and Debo Samuel, right? If you're Samuel's camp, you can't really stray away from that number because your production is similar, similar in age, 
you know, uh, similar players. You know, Debo brings a little bit more in the running game, I'd say. So I'd say he's a little bit more valuable, but you can't stray too far away from that. And if you're the 49ers, you also can't stray too far the other way because now there's kind of a benchmark. And then we got further into the numbers, and you see that A.J. Brown got a $23 million signing bonus, meaning the Eagles give him a check basically for $23 million at signing. He got $40 million uh, fully guaranteed at the time of signing, which means if no matter what happens, he gets $40 million. The fifty, the difference between the fifty-seven and the forty, is that the fifty-seven is only guaranteed for injury. So the the seventeen million dollars, which is in year three, is only guaranteed if AJ Brown is hurt. So if in year three the Eagles decide to cut him and AJ Brown is healthy, he will not see that seventeen million dollars, which is effectively what that means. Um, so now, based off of those numbers, if you're the forty-nine ers, you're like fantastic, right? We can do a signing bonus with Debo Samuel for twenty-three million dollars. We can give him $40 million guaranteed. They've done that in the past, right? They gave Trent Williams, I think, $40.5 million guaranteed at signing. They gave George Kittle 30. I think they give Fred Warner like in that ballpark. So they've done that in the past. So that's very doable. And then the average annual value is just a fluffed up number, uh, like you mentioned. And, and we'll kind of get into that here. So, like you mentioned, the cap hits, right? The $5.6 million, which Debo Samuel basically makes right now, he makes $4.9 million against the cap this season. So if he were to get something similar to A.J. Brown's deal, he would only be making $700,000 more against the cap this season. So that's very doable, right? The 49ers don't need to free up cap space to be able to create, you know, that this extension, which seems to be kind of a common theme. Um, and then he's got a $9 million cap hit. Then it's 23, 28, and 38. And a lot of people see the 28 or the 38, and they think, oh, my God, like, we're going to pay this guy $38 million? And you dig into the contract. Well, his base salary that year is thirty million dollars, and it's non guaranteed. Right. It's not guaranteed, not a not a penny of it, right? Mo- and in, I, I don't mean to interject, but in most of these deals, whether it's Kittle, whether it's Brown, whether it's about to be Debo, Trent Williams, Fred Warner, their guaranteed salary, their guaranteed money that they're receiving generally happens within the first three years. So, five year contract, six year contract. Once we get into those those final couple of years in the deal. Like that money's not real. Like that's funny money. And it's again just to fluff up the contract. Absolutely. And the reason that they land on, you know, $38 million is so that the average annual value of the contract reaches 25. Cause that's all, you know, AJ Brown and his camp carries about cares about. Cause now they can say, okay, he makes $25 million average. And that's, you know, he's in some upper echelon of receiver contracts. And the Eagles are okay with it because if AJ Brown is really good for five years. At, when they get to year five and his cap hit is $38 million, they're going to restructure him. They're going to extend him. He's never going to see, you know, a $38 million cap hit. And if he's bad by that point or hurt or whatever, they're just going to cut him and they'll save $30 million or whatever the the cap savings are. So that that's why it's kind of funny money, like you mentioned. And I think the 49ers would be willing to do something like that with Debo Samuel. Now it's a question of is Debo Samuel willing to negotiate? And then the other tool that they used in this contract like you mentioned, it's something called an option bonus. 49ers have done this. I think they did this with Kyle Juszczyk. Um, They've done this with other players in the past. Effectively, it's like a signing bonus, but it kicks in in the middle of the contract. Um, so an option bonus in this case, I think for A.J. Brown, I forget what the number is, but it kicks in year three. So starting year three, four, and five, he'll get paid some lump sum. So at year three, say it's $10 million, for instance, he'll get a check on day one of the third year of this contract for $10 million. And 
salary cap wise, they're able to prorate that over the life of the contract. So now that 10 million gets split, uh, you know, 3.3 million each year. So it allows you to, you know, split up the cap hits, but the player also gets the cash up front. So it's kind of a win-win. And the 49ers have done this with Kyle Juszczyk and some other players. And it's just, it's just a smart salary cap move. I don't know how many teams use it, but I think the smart teams really make, make advantage of that. And, I, and again, I think that's another maneuver you could use with Samuel to give him some extra money in year two or in year three, help you on the cap this year, and just keep, push the money down uh, to later years. So I think now a precedent and a ballpark has been set for what Debo Samuel can get paid based off of this AJ Brown contract. I don't think both sides can veer too much off of it. And, you know, if you're, if you're both camps and Debo Samuel still here is not going to get traded, you just try to work towards it. So we know the numbers now, and now it's about, you know, how much is Debo really going to keep digging in on this? Because there's really no, there's nowhere for him to go. Um, there's the draft is came and went. So the 49ers are probably not going to move him. And May's generally quiet for these type of things. And June is as well. So realistically, as it was always going to happen, we could expect a deal to get done in July before training camp starts. Um, we've seen already a change in the tune from Debo and his brother on social media. They took to um, Instagram on Tuesday and, you know, Debo's liking things, talking about him returning to the 49ers. He's, he has merchandise on his, on his website saying that Debo's coming back. His brother uh, was sharing positive posts as well. So that's a good sign. And I imagine the 49ers like seeing that too. And again, it, it's only a matter of time. The odds that it happens in May or June, I feel like, are slim. But that wasn't going to be the case. That wasn't the case for Kittle, Williams, or Warner. And it's probably not going to be any different for Debo. So I just expect a contract extension for Debo come July, as was always going to be the case. So um, we had a fun couple of weeks to talk about it. But at the end of the day, as we're seeing, it, it's going to work itself out. And I imagine Debo will we'll realize this is probably the best place for him. And um, I, I, I do, I am curious to see, you know, if this kind of bleeds into the season as far as like the relationship goes. But again, we talked about this a little bit before we get on here, just the relationship between Debo and Kyle Shanahan, they seem very close. They seem like two people who understand each other and that matters on the field and it matters off the field. So um Debo's sticking around. He's not going anywhere. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the draft. We're going to talk about, you know, how quickly the players will get on the field, who will help the 49ers, and more. So we will be right back. We are back, and we're going to talk about the 49ers. So we weren't sure if the 49ers were going to use their 61st overall pick on a center, on an edge rusher, on a safety. Those were three of the top positions that we probably – you know, had narrowed it down to, they ended up selecting Drake Jackson. And Drake Jackson, so 21-year-old, and I feel like it's important to note that. He just turned 21. Um, he played at USC as a 240, 250-ish pound player. That's not going to be the case mm -hmm. for the 49ers. So it's tough to, when you're watching him, like, that's not who he is. So you don't really get a great view of, you know, what he's going to be seeing a player add 20 plus pounds to his frame. And he mentioned that. So when he, it's important to note also that when Drake Jackson was a freshman, 
Like he was this way. He was in the 270s. He dropped weight at the combine, you know, because he wanted to test better. But when he tested at his pro day, he still had some very good numbers. Um, the jumps were nice. So what are the 49ers getting in Drake Jackson? We will see. I think that it's, you know, he's an uber athlete, crazy athlete. He is a little raw. He can get stronger. But again, when I say he can get stronger, there are plays on tape at USC of him being a 240, 250-pounder. So we'd have to go back to his freshman year to really assess his strength. And as an 18-year-old, compared to him now at this weight, it's going to be totally different. So watching Jackson at USC, I don't really feel like you're getting an accurate gauge of who he is. What I do think stands out is his athleticism. Like He is a very quick person off the line of scrimmage, and he has the requisite athleticism needed I think that he's, you know, just he can essentially right now be a wide nine speed rusher that the 49ers desperately need. Um, he has a, a few clips that I, I could put together where he's been to the edge. He's doing the the fun stuff that people like to see where he's going. He's dipping underneath offensive linemen. And you're like, whoa, like we're like not a lot of people can move like that. And I feel like those are the type of traits that stand out. He has great hustle. He's always playing whistle to whistle. Um, they. I wouldn't be surprised if they move him inside more. He didn't do that a lot at USC. I think his he only played about six snaps inside. But the, my favorite stat about Drake Jackson is, so uh, Sports Info Solutions has a stat called true pressure percentage. And the difference between that and your, um, sorry, it's true pressure rate. The difference between that and regular pressure rate is people give credit to players for getting pressure on like a screen pass. Like that's not realistic. That's not transferable in this it's about all like the actual dropbacks and Jackson was fifth among all edge rushers that were draft eligible and had a 19% true pressure rate that is tied with Kevon Thibodeau who top five pick and it was one percent one percentage point better than Aiden Hutchinson who went number two overall so that's good to know that tells you that when it wasn't true dropback scenario he was getting after the quarterback so uh, very intriguing pick We'll see how long it takes him to get used to playing at this weight again. We'll see how long it takes him to just get ready to play in the NFL because no matter what, no matter how high a pick you are, the NFL is a different beast, different speed, and you're going against true professionals who do this on a day-to-day basis. When the 49ers took Drake Jackson, were you surprised, and what were your thoughts? Hope everyone was watching us on a live stream as the Drake Jackson pick was made. Subscribe to the Niners Nation YouTube channel if you haven't, but uh, shameless plug. Not surprised because we had talked about it and as we were sitting there on the live stream and you see the board kind of just fall towards 61 and you see Drake Jackson just kind of keep falling towards uh, their pick. You realize, you know, it makes a ton of sense. The 49ers, I saw this, I think in four of their five drafts, they've drafted defensive linemen first, right? Solomon Thomas in 17, Bosa 19, uh, I guess Kinlaw in, in 2020 and then drake jackson this year so they seem to love taking defensive linemen uh it makes sense and i say this in complete seriousness as long as the as long as the defensive lineman stays healthy when has he not gotten better under chris kasarik like when's the last time a defensive lineman in this scheme just has not improved it seems like any guy that they throw to chris kasarik whether it's Arden key whether that's mo hurst whether that's just anybody seems to just get better and so I think the thing on the knock on Jackson is that he's just unpolished or raw, right? He just needs refinement of his pass rush moves. 
have extra counters, et cetera, play at, you know, the right weight at 270, 275, whatever that is. And he's young. He's 21. He's just going to get better. And now they finally have a long-term answer opposite of Nick Bosa instead of just rotating these one-year guys, which you're still going to for depth reasons. But now you have Nick Bosa and uh, Drake Jackson, and then now you have a bunch of depth players behind them. So fan of the pick, and it seems like he's just a high-character, high-energy, high-motor guy as well, listening to his press conference and just uh, talking to some people. So Energized about the pick. It's a very 49ers under Kyle Shanahan, under John Lynch type pick, right? Boost the offensive and defensive lines first, and then look to some of the skill positions. So it makes sense from all, all that. Yeah. And Jackson was on KMBR, and he said that he was blown away by all of his teammates who FaceTimed him like right away when the 49ers drafted him. Uh, that included Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, Trey Lance, Emmanuel Mosley. And Jackson said that he was fanboying but he has to be professional. Speaking of Trey Lance, he it is weird, and not weird, but just the difference in having a quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo, who was completely off the grid. Like you had no idea what he was doing ever, which I don't think is a bad thing. And I don't blame him for staying away from the internet. But Trey Lance is the opposite. And Trey Lance is more of like a new school type of guy who almost lives on the internet. And he's been very he's good vocal. and bad. Yeah, it can be. It could come back to bite you real quick. But, you know, he just speaking out, I think that'll, that I'm interested to see how that goes in the locker room, like how players are receptive to a vocal quarterback on social media. And, and I'm sure um, that'll pour through in the locker room with his leadership as well. But as far as Jackson goes, you, you mentioned what Chris Kosirik does to essentially any defensive lineman that comes his way. Arden Key had 29 passing snaps with the Raiders in 2020. He had 240 with the 49ers this past season. He had six more tackles for loss. Um, he had three more pressures. His knockdown percentage was up over a point and a half. His pressure percentage was up over three and a half points. His sack percentage, he didn't have a sack in 2020. <laughs> zero. He had six and a half in 2021 like everything went up and some of them doubled from his previous numbers and Arden Key was a third round pick um he was selected late in the third round and now we ha now he has you know a guy who is just a moldable ball of clay so I think you know as far as the fit goes as far as where he needs to improve on you would imagine that Jackson is exactly who Kosirik wants okay turning the page to the following pick raise your hand if you thought the 49ers were going to take a running back with at 93 overall so Akash and I had flirted with the idea that the running back is going to go higher than a lot of people thought we did not think that that was going to happen in the third round uh, we definitely didn't think it was going to happen second with their second pick but I think that just tells you what the 49ers think of Elijah Mitchell and Trey Sermon and they had their opportunities as rookies. Sermon couldn't crack the lineup. Like he just wasn't decisive enough. I don't think he ran with great leg drive or ran behind his pads either. But Elijah Mitchell didn't either. And by that, I mean, for all of the positive things that Elijah Mitchell did and injuries aside, I feel like there were so many opportunities where he missed holes or once he did come to contact with somebody. And I know he he had a good, you know, his broken tackle percentage was relatively good but 
over the course of the season, too many times, too often, Elijah Mitchell would come into contact and then just stop on contact and he would lose yards or he just wouldn't go anywhere. So enter Davis Price out of LSU, who is a big back. And I don't want to say he's a power back, but he runs behind his pads and he moves forward like he falls forward. I think he has more patience than Mitchell. And I think he's actually more decisive than both. So I honestly wouldn't be surprised if we are looking at uh, the 49ers bell cow, the 49ers workhorse next season. By drafting him here, that would suggest they expect him to beat out Elijah Mitchell. They expect him to beat out Trey Sermon. And those two would be the afterthoughts easily right away. Drafting a running back in the third round and back-to-back years, like that's going to tick off a lot of fans. And I understand why. But that's really the discourse with running backs, just because we we treat running backs like they are subhuman. And that's just the the way they're talked about on the internet. But in a Kyle Shannon offense, they're a very important position. Uh, everything funnels through the running game. And if you don't have a reliable running back, you have to throw Debo Samuel back there. And I mean, obviously, he doesn't want to do that anymore. So um, I, I've watched him a little bit. He does have the speed. He does have, you know, he can run behind his pads. I actually like the pick the more I've watched him. Um, you can argue whether, you know, they could have got him around later, whatever that may be. But if you weren't, if you didn't think that he would be there at 105 or, you know, your next pick, again, this is a need. They need a guy who could finish runs, who was tough, and who has not only the speed, but the size. So he, he weighed 211 pounds, I believe, six footer. Um, it should be worth noting that Sports Info Solution has his pass blocking total points and no running back ranked higher than Davis Price. So there you have it, a potential third down back who knows where to be. And I feel like above all, you knowing where to be as a pass protector is number one. So what was your take when you saw a running back flash, um, a running back go 93? And what do you think about what do you think this says about Mitchell and Sermon? I don't understand the sentiment that the 49ers didn't need to draft a running back that high. Just look back to last season, right? At, at one point in the season, they got so desperate that they had to move Debo Samuel from wide receiver to running back. It's not like Debo Samuel struggling at wide receiver and they were like, oh, let's just throw him at running back. He was kicking ass at wide receiver for the first eight weeks. He was honestly on pace, I think, to shatter Jerry Rice's franchise record. There was a chance he was, uh, you know, uh, he was right up there with Cooper Cup's numbers halfway through the season, and out of desperation, the 49ers had to move him there. And I feel like a lot of people forget because Elijah Mitchell just got better as the season went on. For the first eight weeks, he also struggled. And I feel like you probably talked about this more than most folks, but he just seemed to, his vision struggled. He seemed to miss some of the holes that you would, you know, see where he most or potentially hit. And it got better as the season went along, but there were struggles early in the season. And then Trey Sermon, their third round pick from last year just never seemed to really flash. He had that one game where he had 15 carries or whatever. But outside of that, he didn't really contribute much. And then you look at some of the older guys, Jermichael Hasty, Jeff Wilson, right? Not much from them either. And they're back on one-year deals. But, you know, if you're Kyle Shanahan, if you're Anthony Lynn, if you're, this, you know, this offense, it goes through the running game. And you need running backs back there, especially in this physical, tough running scheme. Uh, to handle that type of workload. And you don't want to put Debo Samuel back there for five, six, seven carries, especially if you're going to pay him, you know, A.J. Brown type money. You don't want to have him play running back. You want to have him be exclusively a wide receiver and occasionally throw him there in the backfield, right, one or two times a game. 
but not five, six, seven, eight times a game. And so I, you know, you and I talked about this. We thought running back was a bigger need than most people thought. I think a lot of people just assume because it's Kyle Shanahan because of the scheme, you could just throw a day three running back or an undrafted free agent and it's going to work. And that's not always the case, right? It, it just makes sense to have a, you know, a better running back prospect back there who's only going to make the scheme even better. And so that was half of it. So I understood why they took running back at pick 93. The part I didn't get, and this, you know, partially just me not being super involved with the draft prospects, was not knowing who Ty Davis Price was. And I, I think you right. may not have either, right, before the draft. It's like they drafted him like, who the hell is this guy? He played for LS freaking you, and I had no idea who he was. And, right, LSU coming off of the championship team a couple years ago, they just kind of fallen off the map a little bit, but just had no idea who this guy was. But clearly, you rush for 1,000 yards, you throw on his highlights – and he's just a tough runner. Dudes bounce off of him. Clearly, his durability was fantastic this past season at LSU. Things that the 49ers <laughs> would value. So if he can just stay healthy, like you mentioned, he's probably in the running to be the bell cow, right? If he can just stay healthy for 17 games, odds are, based off of what we've seen from Elijah Mitchell and some of the other running backs in this roster, he's going to end up with the bulk of the carries. So I think, you know, I think a lot of people overvalue the breakaway speed um that you know Raheem Moster or some of the other running backs that they've had in the past right I think a lot of people seem to hang their hat on that like if he doesn't run a 4-3 he doesn't fit this scheme but I think it shows you a little bit of change of what the 49ers are looking for in their running backs not just that true breakaway speed but someone that's a little bulkier a little heavier someone that can handle the workload someone that can just stay on the field week in and week out for that consistency and maybe that starts with Ty Davis Price well, the narrative is that Kyle Shannon only runs like wide zone runs and you can find running backs who can do that on day three or sorry, late day three or undrafted. And there's always like a Terrell Davis or just a, an anomaly as an example. And it ignores the fact that one, that's not true because the 49ers since pretty much 2019, like Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan, they've been mixing a lot of like gap power man principles into their offense just becoming more multiple and diverse so to think that you need like one type of running back it's just not true um i also wonder how much of an impact anthony lynn had on this because you know he is the running back guru like i imagine he watched a lot of running backs and he had his hands on this pick but i go back to the jaguars game and in that game Jeff Wilson had 19. So Elijah Mitchell was hurt, which is why we're here to begin with. I imagine if he played all 17 games, the 49ers would not have drafted a running back, but he missed five, I believe. So against the Jaguars, and yes, they won 30 to 10. That's not my point. Jeff Wilson had 19 carries for 50 yards. Trey Sermon had 10 carries for 32 yards. That's not going to get it done. And that's why we saw Debo after that game more and more he was a running back in that game. Speaking of um, wide zone runs, Debo had, I think he had eight carries, but half of those were like power counter where you have a pulling guard and uh, Davis price. That's what they did at LSU. They run a lot of those gap schemes and you could see how he would fit in Shanahan's offense because those are the wrinkles. Those are the changeups where you get those big plays. So um, I would love, I should pull some clips just, because yeah. the, the narrative just drives me insane that all and, Kyle Shannon does is run these wide zone schemes. I was going to say, for those of you that don't know, at a high level, and, and Kyle knows way more than I do, 
but the pulling guard is the, the primary difference, right? Between your zone runs and your gap scheme right. and your man type runs. Yeah. So Aaron Banks, uh, Notre Dame, he's coming from an offense where all he did was pull. All he did was go from one side of the formation to the other, as opposed to um, moving in unison in, in his own scheme. So I think we'll, we'll see more and more of a multiple, multiple running game, but yeah, I, I want to see, what he brings to the table i want uh, it's weird and i don't know if you've noticed this or if anybody else notices this but college running backs look a lot smaller when they get to the nfl uh, and uh, we'll see if that's the case because that was true for mitchell he looked tiny when he was out there in training camp that wasn't true in the games but i i want to see if if davis price actually looks 211 pounds like he looks like a big power back um they do need a bell cow there's no doubt about it because especially with a rookie or not a rookie quarterback or a first year starting quarterback, they're going to want to run, run, run. Okay. Danny Gray, 105th overall pick. He is a guy who I am very high on. He's a name that I dropped on Friday because I mean, there's, there are plenty of wideouts who run four, three. There are plenty of wideouts who, who run four, three and don't play that fast. Danny Gray plays that fast. That dude flies. At SMU, they would put him in motion and essentially just steal yards by throwing it to him underneath because there's nobody who could run with him. So they would give him such a big cushion that he would just be able to run. You know, he would be able to he would push vertically and the cornerback would be terrified that he's going to run by him and you could get easy eight, nine, ten yard completions. Aside from that, his speed in a Kyle Shanahan shot play offense is exactly what they need. You don't have to worry about using Ayuk on these these long run um, these long routes. I imagine Danny Gray will be what Kyle Shanahan hoped he was getting when he signed Travis Benjamin, like or that Marquise deep Goodwin. threat guy. Yeah, like exactly. So he's going to be a guy who you have to respect, and I think the difference will be now when you're running all these play action fakes and you have a deep receiver like that. Trey Lance is going to let that bad boy fly. Like he's going to give these guys a shot. And I couldn't imagine a better fit um, than Gray. So at SMU, they ran a ton of RPO slant screens. So they they went out of their way to give get the ball into his hands. Like he ran jet sweeps as well. So you can do a lot with this guy. There, there's a reason that he fell. And it's when you're talking about wide receivers, the first thing you want to do is catch the ball. His that hands. can be challenging for him. Yes. Um, he just lets the ball into his body. It's not something to be overly concerned about. I think it's more of a focus thing than anything. So if he just pays attention to detail, I, I really don't think that's going to be a problem. At the same time, I am willing to forgive a drop if I know that a 60-yard touchdown is on the way. So I am pretty high on Danny Gray. I think he will be able to help them um, a lot. And even if it's not as a rookie, over the course of his rookie contract, I think Gray is going to have an impact in this offense. And wouldn't be surprised if he has a bigger role over the next two years than Juwan Jennings does. I think a lot of people assume that when they draft someone that runs a 4-3-3 or 4-3-8 or whatever he ran, that they're just going to run goal routes and Trey Lance is going to bomb away. But if you watch Danny Gray at SMU, that's just not the case, right? They get him the ball in space and he creates run after the catch. I think he was, I think maybe you tweeted this out. He was one of the top four or top five yards after the catch per reception guys in, in college. So not only can you throw him the ball down the field, you can get him the ball in space and he can also create after the catch. 
And who better, who's better in the NFL at creating space for their wide receivers than Kyle Shanahan in this offense? So they're going to find ways to get the ball creatively. And, you know, regardless of where they get him the ball, if he's able to catch it, which seems to be, (laughs) seems to be his issue, uh, he's going to make a play. And, you know, you, you just watch some of the highlights at SMU. He would turn some of these slants, some of these in-breaking routes, and split guys. And, I mean, he was absolutely flying. I mean, there's one thing to run 4-3-3 or 4-3-8 straight line and then watch it translate um, on game day. And they talk about game speed, and Danny Gray has serious game speed. And I think this is, again, um, it feels like the Shanahan-Lynch and kind of this front office, they've learned their lesson from Dante Pettis because Danny Gray, when Kyle Shanahan made the call to Danny Gray, he said, the first thing we valued was your speed. The second thing was your toughness. And they seem to just love their receivers to be tough. You think Debo, Ayuk, Jawan Jennings, and now Danny Gray, they've clearly found this trait that they now look for that Pettis just didn't have, and now they've seemed to have learned from it. And that doesn't mean Danny Gray is going to pan out and be this next big thing, but they seem to have... Uh, you know, refined what they look for in receivers and it seemingly worked over the past few years. So let's see what Danny Gray can bring to this offense. They've needed it. I think Kyle Shanahan just loves having a down the field threat, even if it's just a clear, you know, defenders out to clear out space underneath or if it's to just throw bombs down the field. So like you mentioned, I think Gray is going to have an impact, um, a big time impact this season. It'll, It'll be fun to see how he's used right away and how they kind of work him in. Uh, into the lineup. All right, next pick, UTSA offensive lineman Spencer Burford. And I believe the 49ers were on this guy for like years and years and years. They really wanted um they really wanted to get him in the get him in the room and it worked out. So we don't have to touch on uh, too deeply on you know the offensive line picks. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of offensive line play because one, I don't know offensive line play like that. And two, you probably don't want to hear us talk about it. So there are highlights of him where he is kind of an a-hole, where he's just running through guys. Trent Williams-esque. Like forklifting guys off their feet, both at the first and second level. Uh, good athlete. He moves well. And his he, he didn't run like a great short shuttle time. But again, when you're in, when you're in this offensive line, you just need to be uh, working in unison, as I mentioned earlier. So he was at the scouting combine and he talked about how um, he really liked Trent Williams and his dream was to play with Trent Williams and here you are. So I'm, I don't know what he's going to play. He could be a swing tackle right away, maybe down the line. And this is something we talked about on our recap pod where maybe down the line, they view him as a Mike McGlinchey replacement, a potential Mike McGlinchey replacement. Maybe he spends his rookie year, you know, learning the right side. So I think just with an athlete like this who plays with that nasty level, he could possibly be a guy who um, is a developmental pick. And that's what you're trying to get at this point. You, you got to remember. So he was 134th overall pick. The odds of him coming in and making an impact right away are slim. But he used to have a rookie year where he essentially practiced against Nick Bosa. So, yeah, you're going to take that for your development against anybody. And I, I'm just kind of interested to see um, how his athleticism and strength translates uh, to the NFL. The interesting thing about this this pick and Nick Zakel, the other offensive lineman pick, is they just went for upside. They just picked some athletes. They picked uh, guys that they think they can just develop and see what they have. And big picture, right? They've got holes at right tackle. Mike McGlinchey's only under contract for a season. You know, the right guard spot, 
question mark, center question center position question mark. So now you just you just get high upside athletes and see where they fit and then kind of go from there. And I think that was kind of the takeaway on both of the offensive line picks. The interesting part to me was that they scouted uh Burford for that long. And it shows you how scouting really is. You, you know, you follow a guy for three, four years. And if you're an area scout or if you're the regional scout that kind of works in that area, this is kind of your baby, right? This is your project. You're talking to this guy, you're getting research, you're pounding the table for him when the draft comes and when he's draft eligible. And, and finally, when they make the pick, it's, it's kind of cool if you're the scout or if you're Tark uh, Ahmad, Absolutely. who's the college scouting director. It's someone you've been talking about for four years and now he's on the team because of you. So I thought that was kind of cool. But, you know, moving along now, I think they had uh, a couple corners. They also drafted uh, Tariq uh, Castro Fields, the corner out of Penn State, who ran in the four threes. And then the slot corner, uh, Samuel Womack out of Toledo. A little smaller, but his his uh, athletic profile basically is Kaywon Williams who runs a little faster. So what did you think of both of those picks at corner? Yeah, Castro Fields. So I did a mock draft on Niners Nation. The first one I did in March, I believe it was February, March. And Castro Fields was projected to go to the 49ers or mocked in that time at 61. So clearly people think highly of him. And that could be, you know, Penn State athleticism. I imagine he is raw and he will have time to develop. But right away, he'll be a special teams guy just because with that speed, uh, you're going to put him on the field. I think Samuel Womack is a has a very ch- good chance to play right away. So you mentioned um, his profile is a lot like K1 Williams. Uh, you tweeted this. So 5'9", 5'9". Womack's 189 pounds compared to um, K1, 183 pounds. They both have a 74-inch wingspan. K1 ran at 4.53, which for a slot corner, that's why he played in the slot. You know, guys who don't have that vertical speed tend to you, – you, at the time, anyway, you wanted to hide them inside. That's not the case anymore. You can't hide these guys. So Womack ran a 4-4 flat, which is flying. He also had a 6.873 cone time, which is well above average. So knowing that, I, wa- I was watching him um, this morning, actually, and he's very physical. He loves to hit, and he's aggressive. And in the game that I watched, he played outside. He played in the slide. And he even played safety. So he has some versatility. And as we know, the 49ers love to have interchangeable players. So maybe he's a sneaky spot to take over Tart if we get there, or Joukowsky Tart if we do get there. But I think he has a good chance just to play in nickel, play in sub packages. You can get him on the field. He just seemed very aware, very aware of the route recognitions other teams were trying to do. And when you have a guy who understands the game, it's easy for them to play right away. So I think Womack is a sneaky player uh, who could um, – who could probably challenge for the slot cornerback position 100 percent. and the biggest thing this this past year with k1 williams is that he's just gonna run right mm-hmm. he, he was like you mentioned slower coming into the league he was a little older so you understand you just lose a step off and, injuries too yeah and now in the nfl it's not like they just put big slow slot guys they put you get like cooper cup in the slot and you know when k1 williams had to match up with a cooper cup for instance it's just it's just a tough matchup for the 49ers right they'd have to slide someone over you'd have to help you it just becomes if you're D'Amico Ryan's, you know, now you gotta add some scheme uh to help out K1 Williams against a player like Cooper Cub, which is understandable. But now you've got someone like Womack at slot corner who can run. He's a four-four flat guy, and that that speed translates on game film. Now, if he develops, now you can throw him on someone like Cooper Cup, and you don't have to, you know, adjust the defense accordingly. And 
The other thing the 49ers ask out of their slot corners is to tackle in the run game, which Kwan Williams is fantastic at. Also blitz out of the slot. Not sure if, if Womack blitzed a ton out of the slot, but it seems like he's a physical tackler, which they really like out of their corners. And so it makes sense why they would pick him there. It was one of those picks where I think a lot of people just assume because he's out of Toledo and they drafted him, I think, in like the fifth round that it was just kind of an overdraft. But I think he's got some potential to play and there's no straight answer at slot for the 49ers. We just assume kind of Emmanuel Mosley is going to slide in there and maybe Emory Thomas or Jason Verrett plays outside in nickel. But maybe they like Womack. Maybe he shows something in training camp. Maybe he ends up being better than uh, Lenore in the slot and you look up and now Womack starting, you know, in at slot corner. So I also he, think it's a high upside pick and there's there's a chance for him to play. He's better. I would say that he's a better prospect coming out than Lenore. Um, Lenore had the same speed deficiencies I thought that K1 had, and you just don't see that with Womack. I also think that, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, Davis Price, whether we're talking about Drake Jackson, a lot of people confuse what the NFL thinks about players compared to what the internet scouts think about players. Internet scouts were telling us that, you know, Desmond Ritter was going to go early. And a lot of guys, they have, you know, in their quote-unquote top 100, top 50 of their big board, they're going undrafted. Uh, they're on the internet for a reason. The people in the NFL are in the NFL for a reason. And we don't have to take their word who are on the internet over the NFLs. And I'm not saying the NFL is always right because, oh boy, do we have dozens and dozens of examples of them being wrong yearly. I'm just saying that, because so-and-so on the internet said a player is overdrafted, that doesn't mean it's true. Um, it's all about scheme fit. And in Womack's case, I don't think you can go wrong drafting a guy who's 4-4 physical and plays multiple positions in the secondary. And especially with what the 49ers ask of their players to do, um, just being a heady player. So, yeah, I'm excited to see how this draft class plays out. A lot of upside, as you mentioned. Like most of, most of these guys, when you're going down the list, they're either – a a guy who has upside, a guy who you could see fitting in Kyle Shanahan or D'Amico Ryan's scheme. And that's what you want. You just want guys who have a chance. And most of these guys do. So uh, that'll do it for us. A draft recap. Um, a lot going on. There's a lot to long way to go until we get to the season. We have a couple months, about two and a half months. till training camp starts. And, you know, I think it's probably going to be quiet for a while. I don't think we're going to get any news until probably July where when Debo signs the extension. Nick Bosa, too. That guy is still around as well. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, KP underscore show. Please rate, subscribe, review, leave us five stars, wherever it is you get your podcast. Gosh, where can we find you? You find me at Twitter at A-K-A-S-H-A-N-A-V. 49ers schedule will be out next Thursday, May 12th. So I'm sure we will be breaking that down in a few weeks, giving you our record predictions. Uh, like KP mentioned, the 49ers do open up OTAs later this month. So they'll have, I think, three weeks of uh, OTAs, which are voluntary. And then that's followed by the mandatory minicamp in mid-June. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if Debo Samuel doesn't show up for those. I think that's going to probably be the biggest talking point over the next month. Does a, deal, does a deal get done? Does he hold out? Does he show up? Uh, Fred Warner and George Kittle showed up. Does Debo Samuel? Who knows? Uh, but I think that's probably going to be the biggest talking point over the next month. 49ers related, but stick with us. Subscribe to the Niners Nation Podcast Network. Subscribe to the Niners Nation YouTube channel. Drop us five stars. Drop a review. Drop a question. We appreciate it all. And as always, go Niners.